Good morning again. If you would, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Esther and uh, chapter 4. My message will be uh, primarily from verses uh, 10 through 17, uh, but I will be reading uh, verses 1 through 17 uh, as part of the introduction. It's a very unique book. It's a very interesting book. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this fantastic uh, book in the Old Testament, but the book of Esther has several characteristics uh, I want to mention by way of introduction. It is peculiar that there's no direct reference uh, to God in the entire book. And yet, this book is included in the Bible, the revelation of God. The Persian king uh, Xerxes is the only person who's in the book who is also historically uh, substantiated outside the biblical record. The book has an overarching, like, secular mood about it. God is not mentioned. That that kind of uh, establishes that. And it's difficult to identify a single hero or heroine throughout the entire book because... Someone will rise to a position of what you think is leadership and then another. Uh, First it's Mordecai, then it's Esther. Esther is the obvious primary candidate because someone named the book Esther. Yet all the individuals are somewhat flat or undeveloped. Especially those who would normally occupy a prominent place in a story like this. It's not just a story, though. This is biblical history. But the king, for instance, he's very flat in this account. But in the book of Esther, uh, ambiguity of persons increases with their worldly prominence, which serves to illuminate, when you're reading through it, the unseen world of God's kingdom. Your attention is drawn to the real hero who is ironically not mentioned, God himself. He is the hero of the story. Even though the author did not name him directly. The author, by the way, is unknown. And the events recorded in the book of Esther inspired the Jewish feast of Purim. And some scholars say that the book was actually written to give a record of the establishment of that feast, to give account of what happened for the beginning of that feast. The story told, though, in the book of Esther is probably familiar to many of you, But since I'm going to be focusing on just a few verses in chapter 4, and this is not a series on the book of Esther, I want to briefly catch us up to the events leading to Esther's crisis of identity. And that is the title of my sermon, A Crisis of Identity. King, at the beginning of the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus, which is the Hebrew name for Xerxes, 
This is King Xerxes, the Assyrian king. He's in search of a queen to replace the deposed queen Vashti. Vashti had embarrassed the king by refusing to parade her beauty uh, for the king and his party guests. He had thrown a huge party, and he wanted the queen to come and uh, allow his party guests to appreciate her beauty. And she said, no, we don't really know why. As a matter of fact, some people named Vashti as as the hero (laughs) because she just said no. Esther uh, is an orphaned and beautiful young Jewish woman who was raised by her kinsman, Mordecai. And she's chosen as a candidate to replace Vashti, and so she becomes a member of the king's harem. And Esther, as instructed by Mordecai, keeps her ethnicity concealed. So here she is, exiled from her home country, Israel, into this pagan country. And she's now in the king's harem. And as a young Jewish woman, it's a, it's a life of contradiction and compromise. And she is hiding her identity. Mordecai, meanwhile, attracts the wrath of Haman, who is the highest official in the king's administration. Uh, And he demanded public obeisance. And Mordecai would be at the gate occasionally, and he repeatedly and stubbornly, some say, he didn't really have to press the issue possibly, but he repeatedly and stubbornly, Mordecai refused to pay this obeisance to Haman, and it infuriated him. And because Mordecai was Jewish, Haman convinced the king, Xerxes, to issue a royal decree for the annihilation of all Jewish people. Seems like a recurring theme throughout human history. But young and old, women and children, were to be annihilated all in one day. And that was the king's decree. Of course, Haman did not realize that the new queen was a target of this decree. She was Jewish. He didn't know this. We pick up the story there. So let's read uh, in the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 17. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy 
all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. <laughs> My bad. I'm not going to read all of that, so here we go. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, this decree that I was just reading and I just already told you about, <laughs> Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gates, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gates clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with the fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called to Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So at this point, Esther didn't know the whole story. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haim had promised to pay in the king's treasures for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther and Mordecai, what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So she has fallen out of favor in some way. We don't know exactly why or how. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and Hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are here before you today to look into your word and to gain some insight into who you are and 
what you require of us. And, Father, just to worship you, to know you better, and to worship you more perfectly. So we ask that you would bless this time as we study your word and reflect on the life of Esther and all those around her in this day, that we would be able to learn the lessons uh, that you would have us to learn from your word and that we would be changed and that we would become proper representatives and, and ambassadors for you in the world that we live in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea for my sermon this morning is identifying with Christ is a temporal investment which has eternal and therefore immeasurable returns. I say investment here. Some people might say sacrifice. But it doesn't seem proper to call something a sacrifice when you get more, much more especially, than what you put in. So for me, what we do, what we might assume is a sacrifice or even name a sacrifice is not. We cannot ever sacrifice anything for God because what we get from God is exponentially more, immeasurably, not even imagining. We can't imagine how much God is giving us. So, I believe what we're looking at in the Bible with all of the deeds that men and women do in the name of God is simply an investment which has eternal and immeasurable returns. I want to focus on three points in the message. As, as I mentioned in the title of the sermon, uh, Esther, she's, she's having a crisis of identity. And she's, she's surrounded by enemies, and she's fearful for her life. And we also face an identity crisis in our own lives. And in order for us to resolve our identity crisis, we must do three things that we see in the passage here. Number one, count the cost in verses 10 through 11. And we also need to make our choice after we have counted the cost. And that's in verses 12 through 14. And then we need to implement a strategy for carrying it out. And that's in verses 15 through 17. Esther, we see uh, in verses 10 through 11, she did count the cost. The Israelites, before being exiled and dispersed, had lived separated from other nations as an example to those nations and a witness of God's power. But because of their disobedience, they're now living integrated and subjected to pagan rulers. Very similar to how we must live today as Christians. And this uh, dichotomous uh, existence is part of the consequences of rebellion against God. We have rebelled against God. And part of the difficulty that, has, that we experience because of that is this contradiction in life, this tension, this difficulty. The precarious situation that Esther finds herself in is at least in part, it's not a direct 
result of her own choices, but a result of the sins of Israel. Our poor choices have negative consequences for those around us. Put yourself as a member of the nation of Israel, having affected who knows how many people, and Esther, who is an orphan, living in this, living in exile. The individual choices of each Israelite contributed to the collective condition, which resulted in their exile. And a small part of the full sad story is Esther, hiding her true identity as a member of God's covenant people, compromising her character just to survive in a godless system after having lost her parents, probably lost her parents as a result of living in this very hostile environment. You see, our bad choices have consequences, not only for you. A meeting with a man uh, who has been a, a slave to sexual addiction for decades, and he pleaded with me in our conversations because he doesn't have a platform from which to say it, and he doesn't feel even uh, able to say it to anyone. But he said, tell everyone you can that they can't believe this lie. I've wasted so many years and exposed the people that I love to untold dangers because I justified my actions saying I wasn't hurting anyone when in fact I am the conduit of poison and pain. When I'm supposed to be their protector and teacher. Our actions have consequences, and the greatest consequences are on those people who are closest to us. We cannot consider our actions to exist in a vacuum, not hurting anyone. Esther's an example of this. Every word left unspoken that should be spoken, and every deed left undone that should be done, as well as every word that is spoken that should not be spoken, and every deed that we do that we should not do actually hurts everyone. And as I said, the closer someone is to us, the more it hurts them. The pornography that you think no one knows about, whether it's in a romance novel or in pictures and movies, the unkind, slanderous gossip that we speak, the selfish hoarding of resources that God has entrusted us with. This all contributes to the corruption of a world that our children will have to face. They may find themselves in a similar situation to Esther, surrounded by enemies and forced to live a life of a secret agent. I pray that our children will respond the way Esther responded. That's what we're going to see in the story. We may be tempted to criticize Esther for her initial reaction. She decided against approaching the king to advocate for her people because it would likely cost her her life. She considered the cost, and we must also consider the cost of identifying with Christ. I'm convinced that many who start out on the path towards Christianity will fall away because they fail to realize what it actually costs. 
Maybe some thought that this was just a club which guaranteed temporal benefits. And there is a gospel that's being preached like that throughout the world. But that's simply not biblical truth. Identifying with Christ does not guarantee any temporal benefits. Our scripture reading from Luke exposes that the cost of identifying with Jesus is the same for us as it was for Esther to identify with God's covenant people. The cost is your life. It costs everything. It costs all that you are. Jesus will not accept anything else. Anything less is worshiping something else. That's what he says. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Luke 14.26, as Joseph read this morning. Now, we do need to describe this word hate just for a moment. It, it carries a strong comparison emphasis. Jesus is not telling anyone to hate anyone. He's saying by comparison. Nothing can take priority over me. Anything that takes priority over Jesus is the thing that you're worshiping. And we must come to him completely surrendered and worship him. When we share the gospel with someone, it's best not to sugarcoat it. Help them count the cost. Don't wait and tell them the rest of the story later. They need to make a lasting decision. And we also need to take inventory at regular intervals to make certain that we have not drifted into complacency in this world and and allowing our affections to move toward temporal things. Because it's not a one-time decision to give your life to Jesus. It's an everyday decision. As you can, even Christians... Who, are, who have been covered by the blood of Jesus. We can drift into complacency. And we can become saturated with the world. So you can't, I tell my boys all the time, you can't give your life to Jesus today only. You can give your life to Jesus Only for today. And tomorrow you have to do it again. And if you do it every day for the rest of your life, then you have given your life to Jesus. We have to maintain a vigilance on our lives and our affections. Jesus said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And that's the investment that I'm talking about in the message today. We invest our lives with him and the return is immeasurable. It's beyond imagination. We must consider the cost, though, like Esther did. And then we need to make our choice. And I want to look at uh, some of the things that influenced Esther's decision in verse 12 through 14 because she initially said it cost too much. That was her decision. And she sent the message back to Mordecai. But in verses 12 through 14, let's read that again. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
Or if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I recently read A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a small book. You can read it, well, some of you might read it in, in an evening. It took, it took me a couple of days. But it's, it's a small book. It's a very powerful book. A.W. Tozer says in this book, and I thought about it when I was reading this passage, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living. In other words, what we think about God affects directly how we act, of course. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple, where it is inadequate, our thoughts about God, or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. And then he concludes, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. So according to Tozer, what we do incorrectly and what we say incorrectly is because we do not know God. If we did know God, we wouldn't do what we do, <laughs> according to Tozer. There has to be some truth in that. And even if we think we know, there are areas in our lives, in our thoughts, where we create the God that appeases us. We think about God the way we want God to be. And that is the foundation of idolatry. We may not bow down before wooden uh, images, but in our minds is where we actually commit idolatry anyway. So we need to correct our perception of who God really is. Know the God who is, not the God we want. Mordecai reminds Esther of important attributes of God. And you have to look at it closely. And he does so to help her make the right decision. You see, God is self-sufficient. That's what Mordecai is saying. God is self-sufficient and sovereign. He does not need you. If you don't do it, God will do it anyway. God doesn't need us. That's an important thing to know about God. He has no needs. He has no requirements. To make him better, feel better, or be better at all. It's very important for us to remember this. And this is what turned the tide for Esther in her uh, thinking. God is the winning team all by himself. In every person on earth, all of us in here and all the other people in the world, were to instantly and simultaneously declare war against God his absolute and undeniable victory out into all eternity would not change at all. God is self-sufficient, and He is sovereign, and He is the winner. Everything we know, including our very lives, is right now, my life, everyone's life, everything in creation is right now and continuously 
being sustained by the power of His Word, and you cannot help God. He is in need of nothing, while we are moment by moment, and for all eternity, completely dependent upon Him for everything. In light of this fact, how absurd would it be to shrink away from God's invitation to be part of His victory? Shrink away by seeking refuge within man-made walls that are already right now decaying. Everything that we seek security in, it is rotting right now. The only safe place to be is right exactly in the center of God's will, doing what God has asked us to do because it is just out of benevolence and mercy. He says, be part of my victory. It's like being invited on Super Bowl Sunday in retrospect, knowing that you're on the winning team to just go catch the pass. God will win regardless of whether we participate with him or not. He is the winner. We read the end of the story already. So it seems absurd for us to make some of the decisions that we make. And this is what Esther decided. Is God is calling us higher. He's calling us out of this miserable existence and into his marvelous light because he made us for so much more than the temporary fleeting refuge that is within the world's palaces and this palace that Esther is in. And she sees it when Mordecai sends these words. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's right there in black and white if you look at it with the right perspective. Mordecai reminds Esther that there is no safety in the palace. And if she does not accept God's invitation to be on his winning team by identifying with God's people, then God will win anyway. God's purposes will be accomplished. And then she would be left out, left behind, hoarding her pitiful and feeble, rotting possessions. Maybe some of us here today need to reevaluate our decisions and our priorities in light of who God is and in light of eternal realities. There's no safety in a strong nation, no security in a better job, no salvation in a powerful army, a large bank account. Uh, we need to consider... Are we compromising our responsibilities as ambassadors for Christ for temporal gains? We cannot be secret agents for God. He has no secret agents. We have to stand up to speak out, disregarding any temporary consequences. Esther initially considered the cost to be too great, but she experienced a paradigm shift when she considered who God really is. When we encounter the God who actually exists and not 
the one we create in our minds to appease our conscience, then the right actions become crystal clear. And what seemed to be unreasonable sacrifice is correctly interpreted as the only reasonable and logical action because identifying with Christ is the only investment known to mankind that has guaranteed, never-ending, immeasurable, positive returns. It's a no-brainer. We just have to see it correctly from God's Word as He's revealed it. God extends His offer to you and I for such a time as this, in our time, and for our generation, for New Life Church, for you at your workplace and in your homes to speak life and truth into the darkness that's around us, identifying yourself clearly and unashamedly as a follower of Jesus and a citizen of heaven. Take your place alongside the heroes of faith that Paul talks about in Hebrews and chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. He says, these, all, these, all these heroes of faith all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that's the city that we should be looking towards. And that's the city that we should be focused on. Esther made that decision because she realized who God is and it was not too much to pay. She was going to invest her life, whether she perished or not. She was going to invest correctly. And it's so important for us to consider also that after that, she implemented a strategy in verses 15 through 17. Let's look at those verses quickly. <clears throat> then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went, away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther's correct and realistic perspective on human mortality, she was faced with her own mortality, she might die, motivated her to take action. And today we call these actions that she decided to take faced with her mortality, we call them something in Christendom, the Christian disciplines. There's a reason that we should engage in these Christian disciplines. When she came face to face with her mortality, her perspective changed dramatically. And she only mentions fasting here, but it is by implication also includes uh, prayer, meditation, and scripture, or the law, returning to the law. This is what the Jewish people did during their fasts. It's curious to me, though, I mean, why, why we so urgently seek God in a crisis, but not so much when everything is going smoothly. 
I believe that our complacency grows from our wrong perception of God's true attributes. Just like Tozer said. He also said the essence of idolatry consists in the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And we, by focusing on worldly things, our thoughts about God become warped. Because if we are loving these things in the world and pursuing all of these temporal things with our desires and with all of our energy, you cannot serve both. Jesus said so. You can't serve both. So you must, for your own conscience, begin to force God to be a different God so that you can do what you're doing. We have to come to the correct perception and knowledge of who God is. If we truly believe that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, creator and sustainer, giver of life, source of strength for living, and the only reason for living, then wouldn't we acknowledge that in everything that we do? So we don't really believe it. I'm talking to me. (laughs) Because I don't even know what you guys do. I just know what I do. The things that I do do not always reflect that I truly believe who the Bible says that God is. We need an accurate perception. We lose sight of God's true nature. We entertain thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. We lose sight of eternal realities. Beyond this temporary existence, we lose sight of the real world because that is the real world. This is just a shell, a temporary thing that we experience. We cannot see God's kingdom because we are focused on temporary problems. And how do we correct that? I mean, it is correct, obviously, to focus on God, to turn to Him in crisis. I mean, I was so encouraged uh, just this last week when uh, the President of the United States, he called into the Oval Office of a dozen or so evangelical leaders throughout the country of the United States, and they laid hands on the President, and he, by his request, They prayed for him. They prayed for the country. And then he signed a decree for a day of prayer, a national day of prayer. It was so encouraging to me. And that was in response to the hurricanes and people in calamity. And it's good. It's right. It's correct. But the truth is, we are in a perpetual state of crisis. We just get complacent. Life is very short and eternity is at stake. We cannot sit idly by enjoying a life of leisure while the world perishes. Because we are the salt of the earth, as Joseph read. And we're here for that purpose. So we must then aggressively implement a strategy for Christian disciplines the way Esther did. She called a fast and she said, let's focus, let's reorient, let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's recognize God for who He is. He's our only salvation And he is day by day, every moment. He's the only thing that sustains us. We just forget. And calamity is God's mercy many times to bring us back into focus. 
We need to have a strategy for seeking and knowing God and keeping eternity in view and being about the business of God's kingdom. Fast and pray. Search the scriptures daily. Like Esther, we need a serious strategy. I mean, we have serious strategies for everything else except the hardest thing known to mankind by, by evidence in, in history. The hardest thing for us to do is to stamp out our pride and acknowledge God for who he is. It is the most difficult thing. And yet we don't have serious strategies for it like we do for winning ball games or getting the right job. We need a very serious strategy. And I, want, I don't have time to go through all of the things that are a strategy, but I would do one. This is a book that I'm reading currently, and it's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald S. Whitney. Fantastic resource. And it goes step by step through every Christian discipline that we should implement in our lives, and it gives you practical ways to make sure that you are doing what you're supposed to do in your Christian disciplines. And we don't do these Christian disciplines to become good because in Christ we are 100% as righteous as we can ever be. You can't be good. But we do so, we exercise these Christian disciplines so that we can correctly see God for who He is, so that we can know Him correctly because when we know Him and we fellowship with Him in earnest, you cannot help but be positively influenced and changed. And so that's why we do it. In conclusion, let me say that uh, we, we may never face a defining moment that is quite so dramatic as Esther does, but we will still face defining moments, many of them, throughout our lives, some bigger than others. Our initial confrontation... Uh, with the gospel message is foundational, of course. And that decision, that defining moment, uh, is, is a, a, a point where we start on this trajectory as a life as a Christian. But it's only a beginning of a life full of other defining moments, like this that Esther faced. Each one is an opportunity to identify with Christ and invest our lives in eternity and not in this corruption that is fading away. Karen H. Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, and particularly about this last passage, she said this, only if we live as Christ commands in every moment, in every decision, will we be the agents through whom the promises of the new covenant are fulfilled. By the winsome testimony of our words and lives, others are called to come to Christ and to identify with his people by sustained obedience to God's word, which the Apostle Paul calls the renewing of our mind in Romans 12 too. God's promise of his transforming work in our own lives is realized and touches the lives of others in ways we can neither control nor predict. So my friend who is in misery over the wasted years and negative influence can turn it all around, as Karen Job says here, and by God's mercy and by the power of His Spirit can be the opposite influence. And that's what we can do when we see God and when we know God. 
and when we respond correctly to God, who God truly is. What we do in cooperation with God for the kingdom of God will last forever. But everything else will fade away. Maybe you're like Esther and your life feels like a contradiction and it's the collision of these two opposing worlds. Most likely the combined consequence of the sins of all humanity and some bad decisions on your own part. Yet, um, here we are, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're here. And we're still breathing. And as long as we are, as long as we still have the gift of life and that is given to us by God and continuously, right now, moment by moment, sustained by God, we can still choose. While God allows us the choice, we can still choose. And we can invest our life for eternal purposes, like Esther did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Esther and her leadership. And, and Father, for this great example of how she identified with you and was uh, instrumental and worked in cooperation with you for the salvation of her people. We ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that we would be able to be transformed and that we would be the salt of the earth as you've called us to be and that we would, uh, with our lives committed to you and given to you, uh, disregarding all other ambition and disregarding all other desires, that we would desire you first and we would seek you and we would serve you and represent you correctly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.